if at age eight, age 10, if in a child's mind, there is no hope, if there is no ability to see themselves tomorrow, if they can't see past what they're going to eat today, then we're not breaking the cycle. We're not giving that child the opportunity to grow beyond that condition. And it's going to repeat itself. If you want to break a cycle, it starts in the mind. I'm Kate Tucker, and this is Hope Is My Middle Name, a podcast from Consensus Digital Media. Today, we get to talk with Ron Pringle. I am a Gullah Geechee kid from the low country outside of Charleston, South Carolina, born and raised in Ridgeville. And now he's president and CEO of Interfaith Food Shuttle in Raleigh, North Carolina. I got to witness firsthand the amazing work Ron is doing when I visited Interfaith to film an episode of Farms Across America. You can watch that episode, An American Dream to End Hunger, on YouTube at Consensus Digital Media. In one short afternoon filming with Ron, I realized he has such an incredible personal story, and it's one that's taken his life full circle. It speaks to the power of food, community, and the responsibility we have to dream and make sure others get to dream alongside us. Hello, Ron Pringle. It's so good to see you. So good to see you, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Let's jump right in. We're talking about food. We're talking about you. Take me back to your childhood. What was something that you just loved to eat as a kid? Oh, wow. I uh, I think my my dish growing up was banana pudding. Mm. I was just telling my, my son that um, for my high school graduation, my dad, you know, was so proud that his kids were graduating and we always had this big dinner. Family would come over and, and celebrate the graduation and all of my aunts were asking me, well, what did you want me to bring? I told about five of them I want a banana pudding. <laughs> and so five of my aunts showed up with banana pudding. It was a long night after eating all five of those banana puddings, I tell you. Oh, my gosh. That shows a lot of love. Absolutely. You know, that was how we celebrated whenever it was a graduation or something monumental in the family. We all just get together around the table. Mm-hmm. Everybody got their dish that was passed down to them that they're bringing to the table. And that's the best person in the family to make that dish. Yes. It's amazing how much history is just around the table and with food. It's so true. So what was the dish for your family? What did your mom like to cook? My mom, uh, I don't remember many dishes that she, she made because she passed away when I was young. But I do remember cooking for her. Um, She was home one Sunday. I stayed home with her. She wasn't feeling well and didn't go to church that day. And so she wanted to get dinner done before everyone got in from church. And she talked me through cooking my first pot of cabbage and rice Mm. for our family from her bed. (laughs) And that was my uh, very first dish. (laughs) And, And coincidentally is my son's favorite uh, vegetable is cabbage. <laughs> That's so beautiful. How old would you have been then? I, I think I was maybe around 10. So pretty young for chefing. Oh, yeah. Pretty young. 
pretty young, <laughs> but you, you you pick up a lot with three sisters and <laughs> yeah. family that's always in the kitchen there. And, and my grandmother, you know, and growing up on a farm, it was a lot of canning and fresh eating. So you, mm-hmm. you, you pick up quite a bit. Tell me more about your mom. What do you remember about her? Um, you know, I remember my mom being small, petite, very soft-spoken, but, oh my gosh, she was a, she was a lion mm. in how she carried herself and, and how she stood up for people, how she helped people. You know, she had this drive about her after, you know, four kids. She was going back to school, working on her, getting her college degree, um, first in her family to graduate from college. And was working on a master's wow. when she passed away, you know, and so, and working full time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, she was a superwoman, you know, and that that morning when she left from work, almost like an everyday routine, but you just kind of felt different. I remember thinking that I felt different, thinking that she looked different when she walked out the door that morning. Hmm. Later that morning, you know, we were at school and... The principal came and pulled us out of class. And when my sister and I got to the principal office, that's when they told us that my grandparents are coming to pick us up because our mom was in a car accident. Just remember standing outside talking to my sister, waiting on my grandparents. And uh, I told her, I'm like, they said that mom is in a coma. She was just sitting there and she was looking at me and she was crying. And and my, my thought was there that nobody ever comes out of a coma. Um, you know, and two weeks later, she was gone. Mm. What happened after that? After that, it was disbelief. Um, and it took a while to settle because it was around Thanksgiving. Wow. And we had her memorial services on Thanksgiving Day. And funeral services on that Friday after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It was a homegoing service, but it was still a celebration. You know, family was still there, and we're trying to move on with Thanksgiving dinner, but you're also here because we're going to the memorial service, you know? And mm-hmm. so it, it took a while for it to sink in because you were, you know, at 12 years old, you know, you're happy to see family and cousins you haven't seen in a while, and you're you're playing and Sometimes you just kind of forget what happened. Yeah. Then you're there and you're you're seeing the coffin and you're seeing her laying there. And you see it closed for the last time. It becomes surreal. Mm-hmm. It was very, very hard. And you know, I remember after the, the funeral, my, my dad, we all just kind of got in the car and went away, got a hotel and sat and, and, and listened. My dad began to tell us what his commitment was to us, mm-hmm. his promise to my mom, their last conversations, and how she wanted all of us to go to school. She wanted us to get an education. She wanted us to give back. She wanted us to support each other. And that became the, the drive for my father. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a... Very firm father growing up. Mm. At the time, you know, it seemed hard and harsh <laughs> at times because, you know, he was he was very strict. He was making sure that we stayed focused. But looking back, I can understand the weight 
that he must have felt fulfilling that promise. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he never remarried till all of us were grown and out of the house and on our own because he wanted to stay true to his commitment and promise to her. And now I understand why there had to be the former dinner mm. when we graduated from high school or we graduated from college. It had to be that celebration and acknowledging my mom and how proud we made her. Mm -hmm. It's always been that drive for me and my sisters growing up. We could not fail. Well, it's evident in who you are and where you are now. And I want to get to that. But before you grew up, before the graduation dinners and all that you've accomplished, you told me about a time where your dad struggled and he lost his job for a while and you ended up going to the food trust with your grandmother. Can you take me back to that time? Yeah, it was it was tough. Um, my mother, she was 36. And my father was 30, you know, seven and... Mm. I, I can't imagine what that must have felt like for him. Um, the emotional weight of that and now trying to work and, and trying to provide. And mm -hmm. and it got to a point to where as he, he couldn't, he couldn't focus to do that and, and lost his job. Um, mm -hmm. My grandmother lived right next door. You know, she really just kind of stepped in seamlessly and... Now she's having to provide meals for us. Her and my grandparent, you know, my grandfather, you know, farmers weren't working. Uh, they were just, you know, they were farmers. And so having now to care for four more kids, they knew of the resource called the local food trust. Hmm. And so my grandmother got involved with the food trust. She began to put together the school lunch program during the summer. And so she would run that program. You know, our cousins and everyone would come down for the summer and we would all go out to the school for our, our free lunch meal and games and little educational activities. And at the end of summer and school is starting back, this is when my grandmother would then, you know, go to the food bank. And, and being the only grand boy around, you know, that was strong enough to help her carry a box, I would be the one to go with her. And, and my granddad's 74 Cheyenne pickup truck, Chevy, <laughs> a red and white pickup truck. I remember someone there saying, hey, you can get a fourth of what's on the shelf. Hmm. We would go through and, you know, some of the cans would be dented. And my grandmother didn't even... Stop a beat, you know. She'll grab the can if it's dented, and she'll squeeze it, and <laughs> nothing came out. She threw it in the box, and uh, and and we got some some frozen foods, and we came back home, and then my grandmother would get things bagged up, and and then make her rounds to several families, and our box would be there on the back porch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember a little. <laughs> pasta meals here. Um, they were called veal tortilla alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really thought I was eating some fancy, fancy food here. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was Italian and eating some French food. So my imagination just kind of took it in. Yes. You know, you just, you know, you boil the bag in some water and, you know, you pour the alfredo sauce on top of the noodles. And <laughs> it was uh, nothing that we would have cooked have known to cook, I wouldn't have been introduced to it. Yeah. Had it not been for that. We would get the big box of powdered milk and 
my sister would make it like you make Kool-Aid, you know, you pour the pitcher and powder in there and yep. stir it in together. And sometimes you see it separating and. <laughs> yeah. And then and that's what we ate for breakfast, you know, was that powdered milk and cereal. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, when we were able to get a real gallon of milk, oh, it was the best thing in the world, you know, just to, <laughs> to have real milk with cereal, you know? And so, but yeah. it, it wasn't like we were disappointed or mm-hmm. food was there. Yeah. That was the most important thing is that it was there. And so b- because it was there, I, I didn't have to sit and, and wonder, oh my gosh, what are we going to eat today? Mm-hmm. You know, there was always a pan of cornbread, you know, on the stove that my grandmother would have. And there was a jar of something that she canned earlier that year under the counter. Mm-hmm. And so we we really just stretched meals, but not doing it thinking that we were lacking something or we were missing something. Mm-hmm. We were um, surviving, learning how to make do, learning how to be creative with what we had. Exactly. I just think about all of those different lessons. So you're getting real creative, and I can relate. I definitely remember answering the door as a kid and random strangers, to me at least, handing me bags of groceries because we couldn't afford them. And I think that I was young enough to not understand really what that meant. I just thought, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, what are we going to make today? You told me earlier, you know, because food was always present, you were able to be a child. And I'd love for you to tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. um, When I think back now, being in this work for so long, and you meet so many families and so many children, and I see what is on their mind today I see what they're thinking about, some of the things that they worry about. Mm-hmm. Are they going to eat today? They don't want to go home because there's no food there. That's what they're thinking about. And so when I think back, I think about what was I thinking about during that time? Mm-hmm. I, I remember getting this jacket for school in the winter, and it had this airplane swooshing on the back. It wasn't a, a flight jacket, but you know, it was a big puffy jacket but <laughs> to me I felt like a pilot in that jacket at seven years old and I wanted to be a pilot I wanted to be an Air Force pilot you know yeah. um, out in the country you know you'll see the, the jets flying over you know I remember when I saw my very first A-10 flew over mm. growing up you know I was able to fantasize about that I was able to be inspired by it and had hope that one day could happen. And so when I think about those feelings and things that I was experiencing, it was hope. You know, it was seeing a future for myself. There wasn't any worry. And I was able to aspire to do something greater. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I saw children who don't have that. They were my age then, you know. There is no hope there. That made me even more grateful for my journey, but it also 
made me own this responsibility even the more. Because if you want to break a cycle, it starts in the mind. Mm -hmm. And if at age eight, age 10, if in a child's mind there is no hope, if there is no ability to see themselves tomorrow, if they can't see past what they're going to eat today, then we're not breaking the cycle. We're not giving that child the opportunity to grow beyond that condition. And it's going to repeat itself. I want to get to root causes and and how we break the cycle, but let's continue with you. So you want to be an Air Force pilot, and then what happens? Oh my gosh, I signed up at age 16 (laughs) (laughs) to go into the Air Force on a waiver, my dad signed, to go into the Air Force. And as I'm going through the physical and the nurse is there and she's looking at me and and all of a sudden, a smile kind of turned to confusion. <laughs> no. She asked me, and she said, are you colorblind? I'm like, oh, no, ma'am, I'm not. <laughs> and so she continued, and, and at the end of the test, she said, so what are you going to do in the Air Force? I said, I'm going to be a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, not in these United States Air Force. <laughs> oh. And I, w- I was heartbroken, you know? That was the only dream I had. It was... There weren't any backup plans, you know. Um, All of my eggs were in that basket. So what did you do? Yeah, so I had to look at other options. And I ended up going in to be a chaplain's assistant. Mm. It was just amazing because it gave me an opportunity then to feel a little bit of all of the Air Force, you know. So I, I did get the chance to go up in those planes and visit with pilots and visit with soldiers and, you know, all aspects of the military. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and in some cases, you know, I would step in, hold their post while they're meeting with the chaplain. It it really gave me a unique experience and and level of service. Mm -hmm. You know, everything was just kind of setting me up on this direction, whether I knew it or was ready for it or prepared for it or not. (laughs) I think everything was just being structured and tailored for me to have this responsibility. You told me a little about how, you know, you got to talk with so many different soldiers and you started to realize that everyone has a story and and a reason why they're serving the country. Do you remember any particular instances where you started to have that deeper understanding? Yeah, it was on on several fronts. Um, I went in during Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. I met soldiers. um, I met Rangers. I met Marines. I met Navy men and and women, and some of them, you know, who actually were coming back from combat and and readjusting to being home, to being among their family again. And the level of support for our soldiers that you see now with Wounded Warriors and all of these um, organizations that are out, that are here now, there weren't many opportunities like that then. And so the chaplaincy really played a big role and a lot of the counseling and a lot of the engaging with some of these soldiers and to hear their stories, things that they've seen, things that they've experienced, you know, the brotherhood and the camaraderie and how close they get in those situations. 
and seeing opportunities where you just see racism just fade. You see animosity fade. And, and you see a united brotherhood, you know, for one common cause. It became about God. It became about country. And that level of passion, it, it made me even the more proud to be doing what I was doing and honored to see soldiers and hear soldiers who said, man, I could not have made it without you. Mm-hmm. And I, I always kept a little bag of candy, you know, with me. And, you know, soldiers would be on post and standing guard. And whether it was a refugee camp, you know, where we're up all night or it was on a flight line where you're standing in the heat all day, that little piece of candy, <laughs> <laughs> the only flavor they had that day. When I talk to some of my veteran buddies now, and we, we look back and we think back on some of those moments, we were able to find so much joy. Yeah. Even with, you know, some of our brothers that did not come home, it, it, it made a difference. And coming home myself, it was a, a bit of a challenge. I, I struggled for about three years after I came home, just trying to find my place and um, readjust. Yeah. You know, I just never knew it would be that difficult, mm-hmm. you know, and suffering from depression and, yeah, at one point living out of my car. <laughs> mm. you, you try to re-engage with your classmates, but, you know, some of them, they went off to college and started families and went on with life and here I am the kid coming back home and I'm speaking strange (laughs) you know my Gullah accent is not as there as much anymore and talking about love for country and love for God and and I'm the one that's brainwashed you know so it's it it was difficult to connect Mm. you know and and you felt you felt isolated so how did do you get from there to where you are now? What what happened next? It was a veteran brother of mine. You know, he said, uh, you know, you're still looking for work? You know, the food bank, they're going to be looking for somebody. I'm working at the food bank and they're just starting out. They're, you know, they're growing. It's so much we can do there. I just need somebody that's going to work. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I... Uh, absolutely, I'll give it a shot. Mm. I went down there and that Wednesday, and I talked to the director there, Archie McCree, and it was open with him and honest. I said, "Hey, you know, the past you know a couple of years has been tough, uh, readjusting, you know, home from the military, and you know, here I am thinking after I get out of the United States Air Force, things would be so easy, easy to get a job. I have an Air Force background. Mm-hmm. This wasn't the case." moving back to Charleston, South Carolina, of all places. And Archie looked at me and said, okay, I heard some good things about you, and I'm, I'm going to give you a shot. <laughs> can you start tomorrow? <laughs> yes, sir, I can. And um, I, I started at the food bank on a Thursday. Wow. Working in the warehouse. Um, that Friday, the young man that told me about the job was like, hey, uh, come up front. I'm going to show you this computer that we're using and went that Friday and worked with him up there on that and that Monday he called out sick had the flu (laughs) and he was out for a week and so I had that one week third day on the job that I really had to step in and and grab a hold of the reins Wow! (laughs) we initiated that week and called it hell week 
<laughs> from that point forward. And that became a tradition for us as we hired more people and brought in more people. But by the time he came back, I was in full swing and loving this work and, mm. you know, pulling orders and different people were coming to pick up food and, you know, and talking to them about where they're taking it and who they're feeding. And they're telling me about the people in their neighborhood and in their community. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that broad. And, you know, the more of these partners I met, the more of these community leaders I met, the more I learned about what was really happening and how important that this food bank was. And, and we got in and, and really began to grow. Hmm. Accessing more grocery stores, you know, hey, don't throw away your food. We want to come by and pick it up. At one point, we were the fastest growing food bank in the country for about five years. Wow. Do you feel like your experience in the military and hearing other people's reasons for serving informed your reason for serving not only in the military but outside of it in food banking? How did that connect? It, it connected for me because part of that challenge I experienced when I got out was me not serving. Mm-hmm. I got accustomed to, to serving. I got accustomed to making people's day. Yeah. Having them leave me better. Mm-hmm than they were when they came. And I, I didn't have that feeling anymore when I when I got out and I sold insurance. I did insulation. I was crawling up under people's housing, hanging insulation, and I sold burial plots. Wow. <laughs> During that time, just trying to find my way. I sold cars. And it just nothing compared um mm-hmm. to that military experience. And when I, when I got to the food bank and started serving, you know, those partner agencies that came in and they were picking up food and, you know, you began to see them more often and you build these relationships. And now they're telling you the impact that this food is having. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to go with Archie um, on a presentation to one of the local civic groups. And so they wanted, you know, him to come in and talk to him about the program. And we talk about the facts, the numbers, the figures, but he always makes it personal and told a story. And and he, he talked about a single parent having to raise their children and how they were dependent on the food bank and how important it was that, you know, food is there whenever that family come to the food bank. And it dawned on me that that's my story. You're the reason why food was there when my grandmother and I came. And fast forward 13 years later, you're the one who gave me this opportunity to serve. And I think it was in that moment, I no longer saw it as an opportunity, but more of a responsibility. And you became CEO of Interfaith Food Shuttle. What brought you to Interfaith and when did you start? How did that all come together? I I came up from Fayetteville. Um, I was the director there at the food bank in Fayetteville for about eight years. And while there, I was unfortunately have gone through 
Hurricane Matthew that hit uh, North Carolina and one of my counties in Robinson County was one of the worst hit in the state. So many families that lost their homes, um, whose floodwaters. Um, it was a tough process to lead the organization through and um, a long recovery process, you know, and you really got to know families because you're spending that much time with them and, and, and walking through this recovery process and mm-hmm. you're seeing them when they get back in their home and, you know, and they're inviting you over and, hey, we're having our housewarming. After, you know, 18 months, we're, we're finally back in our home, only to six months later have Hurricane Florence come through again. Mm. And Hurricane Michael right behind that. And so many of these families that had my number then began to call. Same families, same homes that were destroyed yet once again. And it became a long recovery process and working with these families. And it was devastating. And I think that really took a, a toll on me at that point. Yeah, because you're you're really you know carrying the burden of so many of these families, and when they hurt, you hurt. You know, it was coming up on just over twenty years and and doing this work, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe it's time to <laughs> take a break. And so I stepped away and began, you know, doing some consulting and and working with some food banks on various projects. And when COVID came around, I had been out of you know the food banking for about a year and. When I started seeing how this is impacting and you start seeing where things were going, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, this is going to get worse before it gets better. And my thought was, I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I was on the sideline, you know, just kind of watching. And like, coach, put me in the game, put me in the game, you know. And <laughs> uh, I, the opportunity with Interfaith came available and wanted to get back in the fight and wanted to uh, to be a part of this. And I was given the responsibility and I was grateful for that and came in right in the, the heart of COVID. Mm. And it was an immediate hit the ground running. Many of the mandates were just starting. Um, schools were shutting down. And now it became about, well, how do we feed these thousands of kids? that are no longer getting a a breakfast or a lunch, a school lunch. Mm -hmm. And I just felt a renewed energy. You know, I've admired the work that Interfaith have been doing here for many, many years. You know, we had partnerships with Interfaith when I was in Charleston back in the mid-2000s. They were doing some innovative work back then when it came to nutrition education, community gardening. You know, these were things we adopted, you know, 15 years ago from Interfaith. Mm. So now to be a part of that work and leading the root cause work that Interfaith is doing, I'm over the moon. (laughs) Tell me more about the root cause work. Yeah, the, the root cause work is amazing. I mean, this is the work where we're actually focusing on breaking cycles, In previous food banks I've been to, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we went from less than a million meals a year to over 17 million meals a year. You know, the the focus is different. You're trying to get that food out. You're trying to reach as many people as you can. But we're in a very unique 
position here at Interfaith because we are in a same service area as one of our sister food banks with the Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina. Because of that partnership, Central has a very strong distribution model. We're able to focus so much more on the people in the line as to why they're in the line in the first place. And we're able to start focusing our effort and work on moving those individuals out of the line and putting them on that pathway to self-sufficiency. So we can focus on our childhood feeding programs, making sure that that child is able to break that cycle simply by not allowing food to be their focus or the lack of food to be their focus. Mm -hmm. They can hope They can dream. They can pay attention in school. They can learn and become cultured and and, and, and see a future for themselves because food is going to be present. Teaching people how to not only cook healthier, but grow their own food. Mm -hmm. Redefining the food systems within local communities so that communities are taking care of themselves with a sustainable garden, with a sustainable food system, so that we don't see the breakdown like we did in supply chain, where there's the shelves are empty and food prices are going through the roof. Talking with the community and understanding from them, what what is it that you need from us? What can we do? Mm-hmm. In some cases, they would tell us, we don't need the food boxes, but we do need Wi-Fi at this community center. We can cook here for our own children in our neighborhood, but they won't come because there's no internet services at the community center. So they don't have internet at home, so they're not getting their schoolwork done. you know. But if we had internet services at this community center, our children can come to this center, get a good education, get a hot meal, get the tutoring support that they need. Yes. That is a community that can become self-sustaining because we've listened to what they said they need. And then we're going to work to provide that. That doesn't have anything to do with food, but the relationship started because of food. And while we were around the table, we were able to have a conversation about what the underlining needs are. That's the root cause work. I've seen firsthand in the short amount of time I've been able to be down there with y'all, just the vibrancy all across the facilities, whether it's the farm or the kitchen or the food truck or the schools, even the, the Camden Street Community Garden and all of the gardeners there from the neighborhood. So tell me more about... We're talking about root cause, but there's an entry point. So people come to a food bank mm-hmm. oftentimes because they're hungry. So who are these people? Talk to me about what hunger looks like. You've talked about how it, it might not look like what you think. Tell me more about that. Yeah, the face of hunger has definitely changed over the years. Um, and I think it's been no more evident than you know, as recent as COVID here. And I think it's been revealed in a space that people can more easily identify and understand because they were able to see the food lines that were stretched across the country. Mm-hmm. What they realize is that the people I'm seeing in those lines, those, those people look like me. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, I drive a car like that. 
But that person is in the line looking for food because their job closed. Um, businesses took new turns or COVID has shut things down. You know, hunger is sitting at the cubicle next to us. Hunger is in the classroom sitting with my son in class. They're taking nap time in, in kindergarten. Hunger is there. Mm-hmm. When it comes to getting food or paying the light bill, getting food or paying your rent or mortgage, getting food or getting the medication that you need. Food is one of those negotiable things that are on the table that shouldn't be. So how is this understanding reflected at Interfaith Food Shuttle? We treat people with respect and dignity. This is what is expected of every employee, every volunteer, every individual that walked through the doors of the food shuttle. Rather, it's someone coming for food or someone coming to give us a $10,000 check. You can expect to be treated as such. Have you seen, you know, people giving assistance ending up needing assistance? That we've seen more often than not. Sometimes I'll get a phone call from one of our donors. I wanted to know how I can go about getting some of the services. I used to donate every month, you know, but I wanted to know, am I eligible? Am I able to get this? And someone would pull up and call you over to their car before they get out because they know you, they recognize you. Just engage in conversation. Hey, how's the distribution going? You got a lot of people out here today. And, you know, you can tell they're kind of feeling their way around. And then they might ask, is, is this for anybody? And yeah, it is. Anybody can come up and get something. Anybody that wants to walk through that line can walk through that line without question. Mm-hmm. I got a call. You know, and they were asking if I knew of anybody that was hiring. They made six figures and they know that they're not going to probably find that right out the gate, but they're open. Mm -hmm. And this was a conversation that happened over about six months. And each time the the, uh, acceptance was more and more. Mm -hmm. And the conversation got to whereas, you know, hey, I'll, I'll take anything that they got right now. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what about food? Can we take care of you there? Can I get something to you? And the first couple of times it was, no, 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 we're good. We're good. You got people that need that. You got people that need that. And it wasn't until that last conversation I could tell that help was needed. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't something that I pushed. I told them about me and how I depended on this system. I told them about my challenge and my struggle and having to lean on someone, having to ask for help, and how grateful I was that I did, how helpful people were to me. And then I just let him know that, hey, we're here for you. That's why we're here. Mm. And it was a breaking moment for that individual you know, and we were able to to get them food. We were able to continue working with him and his family. 
He is now working again and uh, rebuilding and has been volunteering <laughs> from time to time, you know. And uh, in those moments, having that lived experience makes a difference when you're trying to connect to people who are living an experience. Tell me, what is the ultimate goal for Interfaith Food Shuttle and for you as you work out that mission? I think ultimately what we're looking for is a systems framework where a community is taking care of a community. A neighbor is taking care of a neighbor. There is no stigma. There is no systemic barrier. It's just the responsibility that we embrace for each other. It's learning together. It's growing food together. It's serving each other. I understand that may sound like the dream world, um, but I, I, I grew up in that dream world. So it exists. My grandmother was a part of it. My father was a part of it. My family was a part of it. And in that dream world, I could hope. I could dream. I could have aspirations because our community took care of our community. The food bank was a part of our community. Our local elected officials were a part of our community. The donor, the local grocery store that was not throwing food away but making sure it went to the food bank was a part of our community. And everyone embraced that responsibility. My grandfather as a farmer growing food and, and having his food stand open there free to the community was a part of the community. We weren't clients. We weren't victims. We were neighbors. Mm. And when you remove the client from the center and you make them include them in as being a part of the circle, they become a part of the solution. They may need to depend on this system today, but tomorrow they're given right back to the same system. It's so compelling, Ron, to hear you talk about this because that is you. And as you were saying, you know that it exists because you lived it. Yeah. Do you feel like you're still paying Archie back? Uh, he would say, I don't owe him anything. I, I think I've, I've moved beyond paying the debt and move into that space of being grateful for the responsibility. And, and now I look for the opportunity to give. What today is giving you hope? It's hard. It seems as if every time you turn on the news or, you know, you get a phone call, there's a tragedy. So with everything that's going on around us, I have to refocus on what my role and responsibility is in the midst of all of this. And that's where I find my hope. That's where I gather my strength because then I focus on what change I can do, what hope I can provide because <laughs> I'm a clear living example. You never know how life is going to turn out simply because things are present or not present. I know if I can help to make food present, that child has an opportunity to hope, to dream. 
And it could just very well be because food is present in that child's life. Maybe that child is thinking about becoming a scientist. Mm. Maybe that child's dream is to become a doctor. Maybe that child's dream is to become president. If I'm focusing on my responsibility in the midst of everything that's going on, hope is going to flourish on its own. Ron, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful to get to connect with you again. Thank you for sharing all that you did and uh, continue the good work. I greatly appreciate talking to you, um, Kate. This is just, this is awesome. Thank you, Ron Pringle, for all the light you bring. You can find out more about Ron and his work with Interfaith Food Shuttle at foodshuttle.org. Hope is My Middle Name is hosted by me, Kate Tucker. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kate Tucker Music. And if there's someone you think should be on the show, please send me a message. I love hearing more stories of hope. This episode was produced by Christine Fennessy with editing from Audrey No and executive produced by Rachel Swaby. Our sound designer is Mark Bush. Music by the fantastic artists at Epidemic Sound and by me. Big thanks to Connor Gaughan, our publisher and visionary at Consensus Digital Media. Hope is My Middle Name can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It would mean so much to us if you would follow, rate, and review the show. Hope is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time.